Welcome back to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers, the podcast devoted to exploring the frontiers of psychedelic medicine and what it takes to cultivate a healthy mind, body, and spirit. I'm Dr. Steve Thayer, and today my co-host, Dr. Reed Robison, and I are joined by Dr. Sherry Walling. Sherry is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate, among other things, transition, rapid growth, and loss. Sherry hosts the Zen Founder podcast, which has been called a must-listen by both Forbes and Entrepreneur Magazine and has been downloaded more than a million times. Uh, I can't say the same of our podcast, so (laughs) we're honored to have uh, an experienced podcaster on our pod. Sherry was also the host of the Mind Curious podcast, a podcast series exploring innovations in mental health care via psychedelics. So there's your crossover, folks. Today, Reed and I talked to Sherry about her new book, Touching Two Worlds, an exploration of grief and joy in the aftermath of loss. Reed and I have been meaning to discuss grief and loss on the show for quite a while, so we're honored to have Sherry on to walk us through this really challenging territory. I also appeared on Sherry's podcast as a guest, the Zen Founder Podcast, so check that out. Not, it might not be out when you listen to this, so just hold it in your heart and go search for it for when it releases. As usual, if you like the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you like to listen. If you're watching on YouTube, go ahead and uh, and let's let's say gently press that like button. The YouTubers my kids watch are always asking them to smash that like button. So, you know, let's extend the like button some compassion today and just give it a, a loving, loving little tickle. You can also connect with Reed and myself on Instagram. Reed is at Interspace Doctor, and I am at Dr. Steve Thayer. Without further ado, I bring you Dr. Sherry Walling. Welcome back, everybody, to Psychedelic Therapy Frontiers. We have a special episode today. All of our episodes are special. I mean, let's let's be perfectly mm-hmm. frank. But uh, today we have Dr. Sherry Walling on the show. Hi, Sherry. Hello. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Sherry, would you mind introducing yourself to our audience, people who might not be familiar with you, your podcast, and your work? Yeah, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I have a pretty uh, deep history of training in the trauma world, but now I spend most of my time working with entrepreneurs and business owners around their unique mental health needs. Um, The other part of my life is as a circus artist, and I have a long history of kind of scientific curiosity around psychedelic-supported psychotherapy, so I'm excited to talk to you both. Um, I also host a podcast called Zen Founder, which focuses on the mental health needs of entrepreneurs. And then for a while, I did a podcast called Mind Curious, which is also focused on sort of the emerging science of psychedelics. Was it Mind? This was Mind Curious, and that was with which company? It was with the company Mind Cure. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. So clever. You mentioned mentioned circus artist. Is that what I heard you say? That's what I said, yes. (laughs) I mean, it was a list of of awesome things, but I would love to hear more about circus artistry. (laughs) It tends to be the thing that's most interesting. (laughs) Uh, I saw your sample chapter talks about that for your book that you have on your website. I did. So I just wrote this book about grief and the grief that it talks about is uh, the loss of my brother to suicide and my dad to cancer. So it's a really Mm -hmm. heart forward, you know, just heavy deep topic. But um, part of my journey with grief has been to really 
dive into this aerial practice. So I use aerial fabrics to do a little flying trapeze. And so I actually launched the book with an original circus show, which my publisher thought was like the craziest thing that they had ever heard that I would you know, launch this like very beautiful, very serious book with a circus show. But I'm, I have to be honest, objectively, it was a very, very beautiful show and uh, something that, that worked out pretty well. That's so cool. Uh, have you ever done any circus tricks on a video podcast interview? Just a hypothetical question. I haven't, <laughs> but that seems like something I should put on my to-do list. <laughs> Yeah, Reed, maybe not the set and setting for uh, an aerial acrobatics demonstration right now, but um, I do want to say I've, I've, I've recently become interested in the world of circus aerobatics. My nine-year-old son was doing uh, gymnastics and he was getting kind of bored with it. And yeah. so we found him a place locally in Utah where he can do aerobatics. So he's working on the silks. He's working on the, uh, the, like the giant hoop, doing some trampoline work. He loves it. Beautiful. Yeah, no, I'm like a 40 year old, nine year old, like, <laughs> you know, to have that, like to be a fully grown up with a PhD who has, you know, kids and on the whole deal, but still that delightful play. And then to really be in your body. I think for me, it's been this like really interesting practice of integration, which I know y'all mm. probably talk about mm -hmm. in terms of taking this this big emotional reality that I was holding, but needing to really bring in big physical movement as a way of integrating sort of mind, body, spirit kind of experiences. Yeah, that's amazing and so true. Uh, I can relate having found yoga, then acro yoga, and in the acro yoga studios, often, uh, you know, silks, and I have silks and rings in my backyard, as well and i've been ah. to trapeze class just because it's so okay. fascinating and fun so we could just make our whole we could make a band of like mental health <laughs> circus artists right here <laughs> three of us there you go that would be great traveling band i'm not as uh i'm not as um shall we say aerobatically inclined maybe as the two of you are but reed keeps trying to lure me into a yoga class we i did go to one kundalini class um, but at lunch, we were talking about getting me into a hot yoga class, a Bikram yeah. class. Yeah. Yep. That was kind of the gateway drug for me. Actually, I started with yoga and then ended up in an aerial yoga class. And then, you know, mm. lo and behold, I'm in the circus. So that's how it starts. Sherry, I'm curious to learn more about Touching Two Worlds. Um, maybe you could tell us about the title and um, a little bit more about processing grief. Yeah. So it's a, a little bit of an accidental book, to be honest. Um, when yes. I think about what I expected from my career and the, the voice that I thought that I had to offer the world, I probably wouldn't have put grief in like the top 10 topics. Um, but then, of course, grief happened. And so um, my dad, we had about 18 months with him from the time that he was diagnosed with cancer until he passed away. And right alongside his illness, my brother, um, who was 33 at the time that he died, but he took a pretty significant deep dive into depression and into alcohol addiction and kind of went through that, like, into treatment, into rehab, did really well for a while, had a relapse, started over, just sort of did that cycle. And so I spent, you know, several years watching these people that I love dearly really implode and fall apart and eventually both die. And then I spent 
a few years intensively grieving these losses. And so I think the the thing that you know, helped me personally was writing, was writing and moving. Those were the two tools that were most helpful to me. And I wrote enough and I wrote so much that I found that I was sending little essays to people or paragraphs to my clients or my friends. And I realized that I'd written something that I felt like I did want to share. And part of what I wanted to share was the sense that a lot of what I learned in graduate school about grief didn't really match my experience. And I wanted to sort of have a different conversation about grief and how grief feels, and then offer some maybe different kinds of tools or strategies or like little tips to people who were coming behind me who were also experiencing grief. So that's kind of how the book came to be. You know, I find that um, a lot of people who are called to work like you have been called to it, um, who experience a tremendous amount of pain and find a way to process and heal and integrate, uh, produce the, the most helpful work. Mm. Um, I noticed that a lot of people who are called to the psychedelic work are either called to it because they're really interested in the research, which is cool. They're frustrated by the, maybe the lack of what we can do for people as mental health professionals, but oftentimes by their own healing, yeah, by their own healing with, with psychedelic medicines. So I really appreciate it when I meet someone like you, right? Who can, who can take their pain and turn it into help for others. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was really aware of the research in psychedelics and I was really curious, like sort of science curious about it, but it wasn't until I watched my brother's experience that I felt almost like catalyzed. Like I just like, this cannot be the best course of mental health care that we have to offer people. Mm-hmm. And so that, watching him really go through these cycles of working really hard, but not finding a thing that could help re-regulate his body. Um, just, just sort of intensified my curiosity and desire to advocate for access to these as healing resources. Cause the things that were happening just weren't working for him. Was this during the grieving process for him in addition to his own struggles with like uh, addiction or mental health. It was the, I couldn't access help with uh, bereavement or grief in the context of that struggle as well. Yeah, I think for him, grief was really destabilizing. Like it Mm -hmm. really kind of exacerbated all those wounds and injuries that lived inside of him in a way that he couldn't regain his footing. So, for example, uh, we were all with my father when he died. I was laying in bed with him. My brothers were beside him. My mom was there. In in many ways, it was this very beautiful send-off. You know, he died at home. The dog was there. It was, I think, when we think about how we would like to die, it's Mm -hmm. pretty high up there in terms of surrounded by people that you love in the comfort of your home. So I found that moment to be sacred and beautiful and really important. And I, I thought that my brother did too, right? That was my lived experience of the moment. But within hours of my dad's death, my brother um, somehow cracked into the safe where we had the hospice medicine. Mm-hmm. And he stole, like he took liquid lorazepam, liquid morphine, just sort of took whatever was left went on a joy ride looking for, not a joy ride, a grief ride, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> looking for alcohol and just, you know, ended up in jail, like 
complete implosion within 12 hours of my dad dying. And so he was having a very different experience than I was having. And I think one of the things that's difficult about grief is that you don't, you, you don't know what, you know, you can, you're sort of on different islands. Um, yeah. And so to watch him really suffer through that pain and not feel that he could stay present to it in any way um, was, was so painful, um, but also pretty, you know, kind of isolated us. Like I, I couldn't at that point then sort of help him through his grief. Like that was his work to do. So. Yeah. Wow. So it was too much. It, it just on top of it all in his experience, it was too much to not check, check out or seek those other ways. Yeah, that's what it seemed like. And I, I think that, so my journey with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy kind of began shortly after that, after my dad died and I had the ability to, um, you know, access resources that I could use safely and legally. Mm -hmm. And in the context of that kind of work, I returned you know, in my, in my memory, in my mind's journey to that same moment where my dad died. And I was able to see myself not as the oldest daughter caretaking of everybody, making sure my dad was comfortable, which is, was my lived reality. In my lived reality, I was very attuned to making sure that he was okay, as comfortable as possible, supporting my mom, you know, oldest daughter. That's my job. And a psychologist. That's my job in Uh all of the ways. Um, But in my journey, I was able to return and see myself as this, as a daughter who was losing her daddy and almost see myself in that Mm. very childlike way and felt so much just tenderness and compassion for that version of me rather than like the responsibility and the things to do and this is what we have to take care of. So that softening of my own compassion towards myself and that softening into grief, I think was really, really healing for me. Um, And I'm not sure that I would have, you know, really been able to get there without being able to override sort of the prefrontal cortex and drop into that Mm -hmm. more emotional space. Yeah, because that's our impulse. You know, you mentioned being on. You mentioned being on different islands. Mm-hmm. You know, like your brother's on his island of grief, and you're on your island of grief, and it's so hard to see our loved ones be on these other islands and see them struggle, and maybe see them not have the the same access to resource yeah. that we have, like external resource, but also internal embodied resource. Yeah. Um, but oftentimes, I think with grief, and you can tell me if this is your experience too. We don't know what the island's going to look like until we get yeah. there. Like I, I can assume how I might react to the death of a loved one, like a parent. And this is my experience with the death of my father who died in 2017 is, you know, I, I was surprised at given that I am a psychologist, right? Like kind of like you described and I, and I've done so much personal work. I, I thought I would move into the emotion more and I hit a brick mm-hmm. wall. You know, my, he passed away. I held his hand and said goodbye the, the night that he died. And um, I was having a hard time accessing the emotion. And then it hit me, it blindsided me one day in my car and I just couldn't, I had to pull yeah. over. I couldn't stop crying. So it's hard to know the yeah. territory of that island, I guess. And all those parts of you that need to stay intact to keep you upright, to keep you going. You know, sometimes we talk about them as defense mechanisms, which I think 
sounds a little accusatory, like, oh, you're using a defense mechanism to mm. block the feeling. And it's like, I'm using a defense mechanism to stay upright, like to just keep walking mm -hmm. around in my life. Yeah. So easy. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, we have all these parts of us that are organized to keep us going. And I think we deal with those very tenderly in grief because we don't want to knock them over. We don't mm -hmm. want to pathologize them. But sometimes there needs to be these places where they can take a break or step aside, whether it's that moment in the car or in the context of a psychedelic journey or some time, usually that emotion does need that catharsis, that, you know, mm -hmm. that expression in a way that is not as neat and tidy as most of us like to be as professional, serious adults. So true. And, you know, what I've observed in, in myself with grief and in those I've worked with is once you start peeling away the layers of feelings and opening up to our emotional world, grief is never that far behind, like mm -hmm. the unfelt grief. Um, and it, what you're describing, your, your experience uh, really brings to life that adage we have in mental health and psychedelic therapy that you've got to feel it to heal it. You know, this yeah. does need to move through us. Yeah. Or in and through is another one that I think often psychedelic oriented therapists will say, right? This idea of moving in toward it and then through a different version of it rather than under or over or around, right? We have yep. to go straight into the things that we may wish to avoid. In and through the body. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And I'm curious about the embodiment piece. You mentioned um, that, that movement and being embodied and the acrobatics in particular helped you process your own grief. I'd like to hear more about how that yeah, worked out. Yeah, I think it functioned in two ways. One is I think it really was sort of a healthy break. So, you know, it was a few year period where these two stories and their unfolding was sort of like primetime viewing in my brain. Like that was just a story I was living in really mm -hmm. often. And so to go to my aerial practice or go to flying trapeze, those practices really required my whole brain and body to be integrated on this, the task at hand. So I almost imagine like the neurons that are working really hard to help me cope with death, they're like on a little break. And the neurons that are helping me think about how to do a flip without falling on my head, they're working really hard. And so it felt like hmm. I got a little bit of ease because my brain wasn't so overtaxed. I imagine that's how it works, at least. Correct me if that doesn't sound right, Reed. Um, the other thing that Ariel provided was... It, we call in Ariel, it's often referred to as artist athletes. So it's very strength focused. It's, you know, your son, it's a gymnast turned aerialist. It's very, very strong, flexible humans. But um, there's also this artistry to it. It's a place that's ripe with emotional expression. It's dance, it's expression. It's So I think for me to have a really built in deep way to hold sadness in my body or to hold anger, to like thrash around and really let myself move into chaos when I was feeling chaos. And when I was even able to practice being strong, like to grip the fabric with my hands and just to let my body hang there, 
I think it was me teaching myself a lot about A, what I was capable of, and B, how the expression of emotion could take place in my body. It didn't have to be separate. It didn't have to be in words and cognitions and thoughts. It could also be very embodied, which felt very holistic to me. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And it reminds me of uh, these embodied grief rituals that I encountered in uh, psychedelic retreat settings, like in mm. ayahuasca settings in the jungle. Um, you know, for those who would who would really um, need it or or benefit from it, we would uh, help them create an altar. You know, candles, flowers, mm -hmm. pictures. Uh, write, like you said, we write so we don't explode. You know, so we don't implode. Or um, and then, you know, lean into the grief, embody the experience, so we can get through it on the other side. Uh, with the resource of the body, like the the number one resource yeah. we have. Um, yeah, such a key part. Yeah, I loved what I loved what you were saying about expression, like because a lot of times our clients have a hard time knowing what they're feeling, or even if they do, have a hard time expressing an emotion. They'll use that that word, and to hold, as you say, anger, for example, in your body and be mm -hmm. strong with it, to be able to grip the silks, is a way of expressing when maybe you didn't have yeah. the words or your eyes weren't ready to cry. So you express through ecstatic dance mm -hmm. or something like that. And I think of the word express literally like, like you would uh, yeah. let it out. You know, I think there are some medical terms that use that word express that are a little gross, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> moving through, moving right. through. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I have a t-shirt that says the only way out is through. I think I wore it during our last during our hobby episode, Reed. And I think um, that felt really different to me than my training in psychology. I mean, as a therapist, and I, I say this not to diminish this practice in any way, because I am a big believer in therapy. I go to it, I practice it, I provide it, blah, blah, blah. But it still is really, it's really prefrontal. Like it's really words mm -hmm. and thoughts. How are you feeling today? What are you missing about your dad today? What's, what's coming up for you around your brother? Those are all beautiful questions, but I, I felt like it just wasn't complete. It just wasn't complete. And so for me, I, I really now am deeply convicted that any kind of big emotion does need a physical expression. And so for those who are coming mm. to me, you know, for any kind of help, that's now part of the conversation always. Like, how are you moving this through your body? And it can be swimming, it can be dance, it can be all kinds of things that just allow that, even weightlifting, you know, going to the gym and those, if I don't know if you've ever done the battle ropes, those big heavy ropes that mm -hmm. you just like thrash with your body and you kind of throw your whole self into it. That feels really part of healing to me now. Like that's just part of the foundation of, of what I think is important for people who are working through painful things. You know, it makes me think of some of the videos I've seen of the MAPS MDMA assisted therapy for PTSD trials. And you know, these people are not always yeah. idle on that <laughs> bed with their eye masks and their headphones. Like they're up and about. There's this, this uh, one clip where this, they, I think it was Michael and Annie Mithoffer put this pillow in front of the guy and I don't know what he was processing, but he shoves the pillow off. Um, uh, see a guy tear up a tissue box. Like there's, we're processing things, not just, as you say, sitting in, in contemplating and cogitating on yeah. them, 
you got to move the energy through the body. It makes me think of Peter mm -hmm. Levine's work of somatic experiencing. And I love the cover of your book. And I don't know if this is, if I'm interpreting it right, but this is what shows up for me as I see it with the, you know, the, the petals, the flower and the root is you have what's going on up here and you have what's going down on in your body. And a lot of times it's hard for us mm -hmm. to connect those two, yeah. integrate those two. Yeah. I think this idea of duality showed up a lot for me in grief and touching two worlds. Mm. The title is really a nod to some of that duality. Um, one of the dualities of course, being like the sort of above cognitively accessible thoughts and feelings. And then that below the surface, as you're alluding to Steve, like all the like body stuff and then some of the emotions and experiences we don't quite have access to maybe they're in the unconscious. That was one of the dualities that I really sort of paid attention to and focused on in this journey. I think the other one was really grief and joy, right? The two ends of mm. the emotional spectrum for me as someone who is ambitious, you know, just like doing stuff in my life that's cool, whether it's circus or raising children or having a cool job that I really love and care about, that I could live in an aliveness that felt very joyful and very congruent and then also have to traverse to this other land of grief and death where people are falling apart and to be able to be present to that end of the spectrum too. It's often what we do as mental health providers, but I think in a way to do it that intensively in my personal life was this sort of new journey of being able to be in two realities at one time and feel fully comfortable and present in both. That's beautiful. It's, uh, you know, it reminds me of this book by, is it Francis Weller, The Wild Edge of Sorrow? It's so poetic. Nice title. Yeah, about grief. And um, something struck me in that book about the value of it. Like we don't honor our souls, our bodies, our hearts by making time for grief. We almost, uh, or sorrow, we almost condemn ourselves to a shadow of that. Or if we don't learn to grieve, like life has this impermanence and moments come and go, people do pass on. And if we don't know how to grieve or la left um, without the ability to feel the full joy or to be in those moments because we're too scared of it. And I really came to feel like they have to go together right there. Mm -hmm. That grief mm -hmm. is the shadow of love and you can't have the full light of love, the full experience of that without also being willing to notice that the shadow is cast, the brighter the light, right? And so um, I came to hold my grief in in kind of high regard to like mm -hmm. honor it as something that was this expression of love that was the process that that I was to go through as a human who loved people who were to be lost. It, in a way, it felt, this might not be an analogy that it deeply resonates with the two of you, but it felt like sort of the pains of childbirth. Like mm -hmm. this is what it takes to bring about this new life into the world. And it's messy and scary and super painful, but that's what's required to bring a new life to be. And so wow. that the way that gets paired, um, it, you know, it feels really different than 
what I think is sort of in broad consciousness, which is one that if you get too sad, it's pathology, right? Like don't grieve too much, Mm -hmm. go to the memorial service, do the paperwork, shed a few Mm -hmm. tears, and then be back at work by Tuesday. I mean, you know, maybe you got two days bereavement leave. It's just a pretty brutal expectation. And it doesn't honor grief as a season that's beautiful. It sort of says, well, don't get stuck there too long because you've got things to do more important things than grief. So I'm, uh, yeah. And I think the, also the ability to listen to and be present to, and even cherish this negative, painful state feels really different than, you know, the culture around us. That's like, you're happy, right? (laughs) Like be happy. That's where, that's where the good stuff is in your happiness. And I love to be happy. I'm pretty happy, but also the grief is really precious. Yeah, it really is a, a sacred ritual to allow space for that in life, and so tragically not part of our culture. It's uh, it's feared or um, ignored, or the the need for it isn't recognized. I think there are far-reaching consequences for sure. Yeah, you'll hear the, the term toxic yeah. positivity around sort of the social media space now. This idea that you should uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and everyone should be okay. You know, with that um, focus on the, the yeah. silver lining on all those clouds. But I'm hearing you say that the contrast, the, I love all the things mm-hmm. you said about the shadow and it's uh, darker as the light gets brighter. And um, I have a client who lost her son. And in our work together, we talked about the gaping hole that a loss like that puts in your life. And that grief is not a process mm-hmm. of filling that hole. That mm-hmm. hole is there. You know, there is a... Uh, <laughs> the sun shaped stamp cut out of her life now. And what you do, at least what we talked about is building life around the hole. You know, it becomes now a well that you come to and you draw from for Mm -hmm. the memories and the memories cannot be extracted from the pain. And so the pain becomes part of the memory. That's how you carry your loved one with you by changing the relationship to the pain. By valuing it as that reminder, right? Every time I Mm -hmm. think of my dad, there's a, there's a little twinge, like a little hurt but I, I value the heart because it goes with the memory. Mm-hmm. Where like, it's like Oscar Wilde said, where there is sorrow, there is sacred ground. Yeah. And I feel like this is something that the psychedelic supported therapy movement has a lot of richness to offer. One, because it's rich in ceremony, right? It sort of has this place for ritual, for altars, for music, for sort of patterns of being present to negative emotion that, that aren't scary that, and I think, you know, secondly, that this idea of a journey, like that you can go in toward, you know, the dragon or the fiery mountain or whatever Mm -hmm. the analogy is for you to approach those painful things. And that that is part of the healing feels really in line with my experience of, of grief, as we sort of have been talking about that in and through move toward it. And I, I, I don't know that I always, I think it's a nice add-on. It's a nice emphasis that this work is bringing to the larger field of mental health that isn't always as deeply present as I think it could be given some of our tendency to try to alleviate pain as quickly as possible. 
Yeah, I think it's it's contributing to maybe a fourth wave mm-hmm. psychotherapy, and maybe part of that fourth wave is bringing back some of the uh-huh. second wave, right? <laughs> bringing back some of the uh, the um, the psychoanalysis pieces, the union pieces, um, certainly the more emotional, experiential type of therapies, yeah. maybe the, the Gestalt therapies. Whereas we were really caught up with behaviorism and cognitive behavioral therapy, which does great work for a lot of people. It is kind of geared toward let's treat these uncomfortable emotions and inconvenient thinking patterns mm-hmm. as symptoms to treat um, instead of really engaging in, in creating your world and your life around in relation to all these different parts of you. I was really struck by what you said uh, about childbirth, too as one of the most like intense embodied experiences that uh that we as males don't know like you pointed out as females but but we hear about it, we see it and it brings about this like joy i was talking to a friend today who just had a baby a month ago and mm-hmm. mentioned how that was the peak experience the most psychedelic uh transpersonal experience of his life like holding and staring into his child and um if for for a woman to bring that about requires so much pain and it it when you were talking about that it made me think about the the embodied experience of grief is intense and uh and that how yeah. love and sorrow are like really two sides of the same coin and intricately intertwined and how we we can't really even learn to genuinely love unless we embrace the ability to feel the sorrow on the other side of that. I thought about birthing my, I have two, two children that I gave birth to. Um, and I, and I had a third one that I didn't give birth to. So that's why, why the specificity (laughs) (laughs) one acquired two Mm -hmm. biological. Um, anyway, those early, obviously there's the, the childbirth experience, but um, even those first few days of their lives being really hyper attuned to their bodies and their breath and making sure that they're breathing okay before you set them down for the night and all of that. And it it was very, very parallel to the last few days of my dad's life. And that same hyper attention to, oh, he's coughing. Is he okay? Like, does he need some medicine, mm-hmm. some pain medicine? And obviously we're also paying attention to sort of fluid in and fluid out and making sure he's not dehydrated, which is very, very similar to those first few days of an infant's life. Like how much are they eating? Are they retaining it? Are they gaining weight? And the parallels between bringing in a new life and the tender attunement and then sort of supporting a life that's ending felt really, really beautiful and meaningful to me. Um, and maybe some of the the deepest parts of what it means to be a woman in that sort of feminine um, power, not that that's, you know, exclusive to men in any way, but I think in some ways that that caretaking deep attunement does often still fall to women. And it felt very privileged and very sacred. And I think it's also what made the loss of my brother feel so jarring was that he died alone, you know, sort of far away from us. And to think of his body being, you know, outside in a field somewhere felt very like I have to go get it. You know, there was just this like deep sense of, my my brother's body needed to be 
attended to and cared for. And we couldn't do, you know, you couldn't, you can't do that in that context. And so I think part of what I am trying to do in the book is sort of reflect on these different losses and different kinds of grief, not by comparison per se, but to just notice how one death felt different than the other and how different kinds of grief arose in me in response um, to those different kinds of losses. I'm so glad you talked about different kinds of grief. Because I think, you know, there's, um, there's sort of a how to grieve idea mm-hmm. out there that, and maybe even that's mm-hmm. what I'll name the, the episode title for this episode, how to <laughs> grieve just so people will click on it. You right. know, so people will listen to it, they, but there isn't one way to grieve. There might, there are principles that you're talking about that I, we think are in, you know, integral to, to grieving in a healthy way. Um, but there are different kinds of grief, you know, we, it's we've been talking about the trajectory of the psychedelic experience for a lot of people there's a, a mini death in mm-hmm. a psychedelic experience and so they grieve the the loss of their old self mm-hmm. um yeah but there there are many different things one can grieve over it's not not always the death of a loved one and i think the the pandemic really helped to draw some attention to that like how many of us were grieving you know, not being able to attend high school graduation Mm -hmm. or that wedding that was scheduled or that vacation we'd planned in in addition to the loss of life and in addition to grieving, you know, the loss of many different kinds of plans. So I think I really appreciate that the use of the word grief is the emotional reaction to any kind of loss. And so the more that we become grief literate or comfortable with grief, recognizing when it's stirring within us. I think that helps us navigate all kinds of mini all the way to macro losses in our lives. Steve and I like to talk about how triggers are friends to follow within us or the obstacle is a path. And it's, it's making me expand my um, kind of perspective on that in this conversation of um, seeing these sorrows, these griefs that come up, that might not even be ours, like grief on behalf of a child or, you know, others who have been harmed or grief of that unlived life or the, the, the things that come and go um, create this opportunity, you know, to really expand our ability to love and hold sorrow and love and beauty and joy uh, and the melancholy all at once. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of our listeners are, um, practitioners, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're clinicians, they're practitioners, they're coaches or, or they're aspiring practitioners. And I think, um, a lot, what, a lot of what can be learned in your book can be applied to grieving for our clients, the kinds of grief that we hold as we're working with people who are experiencing loss. Um, we need to do a, do a good job of protecting ourselves and, and setting a boundary so we can keep doing the work and not getting burned out. But I think, um, you know, most of us who are called to the therapeutic work are sensitive souls. And so I think being, as you say, grief literate, not only helps you with the kinds of grief you deal with in your personal life, but in being able to hold the grief that your clients are, might be experiencing. And the both, right? Because many of us Mm -hmm. hold a lot of grief professionally. And then we also are humans with lives, with people that we love that get hurt. And, you know, so I think some of the, the intention in writing the book for me was to even walk through what it felt like for me as a mental health professional, like someone who does this all the time 
to still be present to my own grief process. And so I think a lot of mental health professionals, and I had moments of this certainly, where it just felt like I should, I should mm. be above this. Like I know what trauma symptoms are. I know I'm getting triggered right now. I know in my head the risk factors for suicide. Like I like there's all this stuff that I knew and in a way it didn't really help me. And so to let go of that mm. and let myself be really human was a big part of the the journey of coming to some reintegration after disintegration. But um, that's, I think it's extra work from mm -hmm. mental health professionals because we, we expect ourselves to show up well for other people and grief doesn't always support that. Yeah, this, this conversation uh, gives me the chills and goosebumps. I'm just remembering my first ever ayahuasca experience when, you know, I drank this medicine in the jungle and sat there like we were instructed to do for... 45 minutes or so and it kicks in some people start throwing up i started crying like tears just were flowing i didn't even know what they were about and uh you know fast forward till the next morning the medicine team these two shamans uh said you want to talk about what uh what that was like for you and what our experience was as they worked with me on me and uh uh one of the one of the shamans beth she said you know in my working with you and your energy, um, I was struck by something I encountered or in your torso around your lungs, and I believe it's grief. And that, it struck me, it caught me off guard. I was not expecting that. And uh, even to this day, like now, connecting the dots of how uh, important of a practice that is to embrace this part of life. I do feel like that's the work is in a way we carry around this basket where we just, hey, tell me your grief, tell me your trauma, tell me your pain, and I'm, mm -hmm. I'll just hold it here in my basket. You know, it's we're collecting all of these collective stories of pain and we don't just leave it there and we don't just carry it around all the time. I understand it's more nuanced than that, but all of the, the people and stories that we have touch points with that are almost feels like as mental health professionals, there has to be almost a ritualistic grieving. Like we just have to clear the coffers every so often and realize I'm carrying not only my own pain, but the pain of all of those that I come in touch with. And how do I have... You know, Sherry, what... <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I, I, to yeah, cut you okay. off. I didn't mean to. I, uh, I, I just got so excited about what, what you were saying because it, it makes me think of something that I'm uh, I'm becoming passionate about, and that's the importance of mm -hmm. community for helpers. It's part of the reason Reed and I started this podcast. Mm -hmm. We wanted people to have a place, first of all, where they could get informed about this psychedelic yeah. renaissance that we're excited about, um, but also yeah. commune, you know, and um, to get help. Like, I'm so excited that you're a clinical psychologist. We have, so I have so few of those that I, that I work around. I have all these prescribers <laughs> that, I, that I work with. No offense to Reed. He's, he's one of my best mm -hmm. friends, but it's, uh, it's nice to, to meet people, like-minded people who you can relate to. Right. Um, so the importance of having a community to grieve with, I think, especially coming out of the pandemic where many of us felt so very isolated, can't be understated. Yeah. And that sense of grief that happens in community, honestly, you know, I told you mm -hmm. at the very beginning 
about this circus show that I did, which was sort of an, it's actually mm -hmm. a grief ritual. Like it was a memorial service for all of the people that we've lost to suicide. That was the framing of the show. But for the collective, mm. for people to gather and hold hold heavy emotion together in unity, sort of side by side, but also not not feel that they needed to get stuck there was a very powerful practice. And because so many mental health professionals, we practice alone often, or maybe we practice next door to other colleagues, but we, we bump up against them maybe in like treatment team where we're talking about cases or in the hallway where we're saying hi and telling a story about our kids, but the deeper emotive processing with our peers, um, I feel like is very, very rare mm -hmm. and must be cultivated really intentionally. So I'm all for it. I come from a, an emotion focused therapy background as one of my big leanings and it reminds me of this uh, premise mm -hmm. that, you know, our emotions as signals helping us navigate life have this bodily felt sense like grief does and an action tendency like su grief suggesting perhaps the need for comfort, belonging, um, community that uh, that is part of honoring our grief. You know, that's, you know, wired in us to lean on each other, uh, yeah. to have a shoulder to cry on now and then. So Sherry, is there anything else from Touching Two Worlds that we haven't covered that you want to share with our, our audience? Of course, we encourage everyone to go out and get the book, but anything else you'd like to highlight? Um, well, I think I'll just say, given a lot of the folks listening, maybe practitioners, like it's been a wild journey to write a book that's very deeply personal and mm. in a way has taken me out of the framing of much of what I was taught about how a therapist carries herself, you know, that somewhat distant, somewhat separate. So now I'm, I'm many of the people that I work with have read the book, know about the book. And so they're now looking at me a little mm. differently. Like, oh, I didn't know you were going through that when you were also helping me through my divorce or whatever it was. Mm. And, um, yeah. generally speaking, it's really, really been a very beautiful experience. Obviously, um, it's, there's a lot of thoughtful conversation around that level of disclosure and these experiences are now a couple of years in the past. So I think that helps, but I don't know, it, it's just been very curious to me to watch that level of connection as these deeper personal stories have now become part of my client's understanding of me and awareness of me. Um, so mm. just, just a thought, just to throw out there. I love that thought. It's something that I grapple with too. And I know Reed and I have talked about it, like how certainly we have our training and in many, for many of us, our training mm -hmm. included conversations about self-disclosure and how we don't want to distract from our clients' work by allowing them to know too much about us or, yeah. um, or to feel like they have to take care of us for whatever reason. Right. And then, you know, Reed and I are 60 some odd episodes into this podcast, most of which are just conversations between him and myself. And we have social, a small social media presence and I, I, mm -hmm. by nature, I'm kind of an open book. I like to share things about me, but as a, as a clinician, as a psychologist, I haven't done that. So it's interesting to experiment with this. And I can only imagine what it might be like for you sharing something so deeply personal, as you say, with, with the world and your clients being part of that world. Yeah. So since the book mm -hmm. has been out, 
of having lots of conversations about it with my clients. Mostly very, very beautiful and meaningful, but also something to traverse, something to think through carefully. So. Well, Sherry, before we get to the end of the podcast, would you mind telling folks about Zen Founder and kind of what you're up to and, and where you'd like to point them to find out more about you? Yeah. So, um, I'm probably most interesting on Instagram. If people are on Instagram, there's a combination of grief and circus, which again, my publisher was like, you have to stop putting circus on your Instagram. And I was like, there is no way I'm doing that. So um, Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Sherry Walling. And then the book has its own little website called Touching Two Worlds, which does have touchingtwoworlds.com which has some backstory and some pictures of the circus show and some cool videos. So that's kind of an interesting place to check that out. And the book is pretty widely available. It's obviously on Amazon, but also at should be at your local neighborhood bookstore, as well as, you know, your Barnes and Nobles and places like that. And then what about, what about Zen founder? Oh yes. My podcast (laughs) and business. Thank you for reminding me, Steve. Um, Of course. Yeah. Zen founder is a, the podcast that I've been doing for years and years now, we're 350-ish episodes in, um, talking about the mental health challenges of really entrepreneurs, but that kind of applies to all people who are trying to do interesting, creative things. So a lot of you know dentists and uh, physicians and other kind of folk who are uh, entrepreneurial um, seem to enjoy it as well. So lots of mental health clinicians too. And then my company is also called Zen Founder. It's the business that I run where we provide mental health support services for entrepreneurs and and their teams. So it's a good life. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a good life and it uh, hasn't come, hasn't come without its challenges. And I really appreciate you being willing to share some of those challenges with us today on the podcast, with the world by way of your book. I'm just really impressed by the work that you're doing in the world, Sherry. Thank you. It's been very touching. Oh, thanks for having me. What a lovely conversation with the two of you. Thank you, dear listener, for listening. It means a lot to me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen or watch. Also, if you're feeling generous today, please leave us a glowing review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks again. Hey listeners, it's Steve Thayer here, letting you know that Numinous offers unique training opportunities for mental health practitioners to develop their skills and expertise in offering psychedelic-assisted therapy to clients. These courses are carefully crafted by Numinous professionals like myself, Reed, Joe, and others, and offer a variety of high-quality learning experiences. So, if you would like to learn more about these trainings, you can find the link in the show notes below, or you can visit numinous.com forward slash training. That's numinous.com forward slash training. The content of this podcast does not constitute medical advice or mental health treatment. Consult with a medical or mental health professional if you believe you are in need of mental health treatment.